according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11. I'll try not to bump this thing. This is our third uh, session in episode 21, The Woes Upon the Privileged. And we have gone through six points of study, including under main point six, the subpoints A, B, C, D, E, and F, as well as under subpoint F, the sub subpoint of one and two. Everybody with me on that? All right. In between D and E, there was a question that had been asked, and that's what we're going to spend our time in today. Today may be very easy, in fact, because I'm going to give you six principles, and then we will give you point seven of the Matthew 21 outline, and uh, and that will conclude this episode, and then we'll be ready to move on uh, one week from today to deal with that sinful woman anointing Jesus in Luke 7. 36 through 50. Pretty fitting since uh, there's all the attention being focused on Mary Magdalene these days, it seems like. And uh, we'll talk about who that sinful woman was in Luke 7 here when we get to it next week. Let's start with prayer and then, uh, then we'll jump into the rest of this. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we, as we consider the truth of your word, claiming by faith what you say is true, and seeking to understand uh, things that are beyond our humanity in, in a lot of ways to understand. Pray, Father, that we can keep it simple. Pray that we can be edified. Uh, and Father, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We, uh, we're going to deal with six principles this morning, and if we have to take nine hours to get it, then we'll do that, and we'll just stay here through the evening session. If we're done in ten minutes, and it's as simple as pie, you'll wonder why uh, did the pastor think that was very hard, then we'll be done in ten minutes, and you'll all have an early lunch. How about that? The uh, principles, though, come out of the principles we have here in Matthew 11, specifically the what-if daydreaming that we all do on occasion. And we read in verse 21 and also in verse 23, two statements that Jesus Christ makes that are conditional statements. And they are second-class conditional statements, where they assume conditions contrary to fact. In other words, neither of these are true. But if they were true, then these other consequences would have resulted uh, verse 21, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida, for if, now that's not a true statement, but we're going to assume for the moment that it's true to demonstrate what the, what the consequence would have been if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so we deal with a conditional clause here. We deal with an aspect of the language. It's actually common to many languages, but it's a concept that we have to accept because of the one who said it. 
And we'll have more to say on that here in a moment. But we are going to develop the truth of what this passage is all about. Now, we have different statements, if, then, where maybe it's up in the air. You know, if you do something, then, and that's, that's what the Mosaic Law was all about. If you obey, then I'll bless you. Multiply your sheep and you'll have peace and all of that. But if you disobey, then I will discipline you. You will come under judgment and, and the six cycles of national discipline then follow. So with a third class condition, you're dealing with if then. And it hinges on that condition. If this, then that. If that, then this. You see how that works. It can go either way depending on what's done. With a second class condition, though, we begin with the assumption that this isn't true. It's not true. But if it was true, then this would have been the result. Are we clear on that? Okay. Now, we do a lot of this all the time. You know, I stopped to think, somebody asked me, if you weren't, uh, if you didn't become a pastor, what would you have been? Well, I'm a human being, I can't answer that. I could tell you what I might have been. I could tell you that, you know, if I had not become a pastor, I would have become a homicide investigator. That was my goal once upon a time, that uh, I was going to become a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. All right? So I'm seven years late and nowhere near becoming a homicide investigator. It's just not going to happen. Now, I say that, but do I really know that? No. No way to know. Right. I could have, uh, maybe that had been my intention, that uh, my intention was to return to the University of Washington and somehow work through the academic probation they'd placed me on and somehow get better grades and somehow stick with school and somehow uh, follow through on some of those goals. But who's to say? That uh, while in the process of going to school, I could have been distracted by something else. And, uh, you know, Seattle's the, the, the grunge ba band capital of the universe. Who knows? I could have become uh, good friends with, uh, uh, who knows? <laughs> Kurt Cobain or someone. I could have ended up being uh, part of Nirvana or whatever. Get a little bit amusing here with this class, don't we? No, <laughs> but we can't. So we can't say if would have. See, we we can intend. Uh, I can't say that that if um, none of us can. We're limited in what we can see based on where we are, where we've been, and where we think we're going to go. But God's not limited by any of those things. And so, in these statements, these two statements are so powerful. The more we dwell on them, we realize that God knows every what if. And God, God knows the what if, not... See, in my hypothetical case, I'm just going back uh, 10 years, 15 years, all right? And I'm trying to present a what if that encompasses the last 15 years of varieties and who knows what could have resulted, see? Jesus Christ goes back and presents a what if that is thousands of years old. Thousands of years old. If we date Abraham and so Sodom, we date it roughly 2000 B.C. Ballpark figure. So when Jesus is speaking, 2000 years have gone by. And he not only knows that 2000 years ago they would have repented, but through the span of that 2000 year period of time, they still would be here today. 
as verse 23 says. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So Jesus knows a what if that was 2,000 years ago and every other possible thing that could have happened in the last 2,000 years. You know, we imagine, could there have been other opportunities for Sodom to get wiped out? Of course. They were Sodomites. They might have done all kinds of things in those last 2,000 years. But Jesus knows the what-if scenario that would have resulted in their repentance 2,000 years ago and their ongoing, continued survival to his present time. That's, that's extraordinary. Our, our human minds, if we try to get a handle on that, are going to stumble sometimes. So we know the what-ifs. And that's where, I hope you got it down word for word, when I gave it to you under point six, that the omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities. Actualities and potentialities. The omniscient foreknowledge of God knows all of those. See, God knows what circumstances or conditions might have resulted in me becoming a homicide investigator instead of becoming a pastor. Or maybe at one time I thought I was going to become a doctor. That was hilarious. But ten years into my marriage, we found some kind of paperwork and documents that related to some uh, entrance uh, exams and other uh, counseling worksheets and whatnot with the University of Washington uh, faculty there. And uh, one of the things I listed as a potential major maybe was pre-med or something what was i thinking all right dr bob but god knows what now that's an unreality being a homicide investigator it's an unreality being a a, a rock star member of nirvana nirvana that's that's an unreality none of those things ever happened they ever will happen it'd be scary to consider a universe where they did happen okay but god knows all of those potentialities as this passage illustrates. And this is what we want to really uh, wrestle with today. He knows the reality of what happened, what is happening, and what will happen. He's outside of time. He's not limited. See, for us, we look back, we look here, we look forward. God's outside of all of that. So everything to Him is what it is, because He's seeing it. The illustration, he knew that Nineveh would repent when he sent Jonah. He knew that Nineveh would not repent when he sent Nahum. He knew that. But it didn't change his plan, and it didn't change his design, and he still sent Nahum anyway, even though he knew that the response would be negative. We're commanded to go give the gospel to people, even though the response may very well be negative more times than, than not. He also knows the potentialities of what will happen. And how those happenings change in response to other circumstances and details of his plan. In other words, he knows what will happen. He also knows what might happen if he just tweaks a little circumstance here or there. Does that make sense? And that's the illustration that if Abraham, Lot, or some other servant of the Lord would have undertaken a prophetic power ministry in Sodom, Sorry. A prophetic ministry that had a verbal message that also had the works of power. 
The works of power would have authenticated the verbal message and they would have responded. They would have repented. And repentance is a change of thinking, but that comes by virtue of the message received. All right. So it's not just miracles being done, but miracles in conjunction with a prophetic message. If Abraham Lot or some other servant of the Lord would have undertaken a prophetic power ministry in Sodom, then the unbelievers of Sodom would have responded with repentance. And that's not just somebody's opinion. That's not just a human being saying, oh, well, if I wasn't a pastor, I would have, I would have uh, joined Kurt Cobain there in the bands and clubs of, of, of downtown Seattle. All right. Lots of other famous Seattleites. Bruce Lee was from Seattle. Maybe I would have gone into martial arts or who knows. I cannot tell you what I would have been. Other than to say I would have been miserable. Because I would have been out of God's will. Now, this leads to the question. When when Jesus says what would have been, that's truth. These are statements of truth. We can accept them and not only accept them, it's not just a matter of trivia. Oh, Sodom could have remained. Ooh, isn't that neat? Beyond that, the, the truth of God's omniscience and his sovereignty and our accountability and volition is laid out right here in a powerful way I've never seen before. I have debated Calvinists till I was blue in the face. Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Because they don't think I'm Calvinist enough for them. See? And what is Calvinist anyway? What's an Arminian and what's a Calvinian and what's an, uh, an Armin Calvinist? And, and, and what's, is there a middle ground between the extremes? Are you a not quite Calvinist? If you're a four-pointer instead of a five-pointer, does that count? Well, it counts to other four-pointers, but a five-pointer five looks at you and says no. It's all or nothing. If you're a four-pointer instead of a five-pointer, you're an Arminian. And that's usually the attack. If you don't totally line up, well, then you're an Arminian. Which is amazing because the Armenians look at you and say, no, you're a Calvinist. Get out of here. All right? This class today is going to solve all of these questions. Powerful, huh? The debate, by the way, is more than 500 years old. It goes back prior to Calvin. It goes back prior to Arminius. In fact, it goes back to the first century, the ministry of Jesus Christ. It goes back even further than that. Paul writes about it in Romans 9. So we know it was around in the first century. goes back prior to that. The rabbis in Old Testament times wondered, how does this work? God made us volitional creatures, made the angels volitional creatures. But God, Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim, he's absolute sovereignty. So how does that work? Admittedly, for a human being, in our finite understanding, yeah, it's a question. Is God sovereign? Do we have free will? It could appear to be intention if some people assume that because it's intention then one has to be true, one can't be true. And therein, draw, you know, put a line in the sand, choose sides, and let's fight it out. Or, we realize in our finite understanding, we can't grasp the fact that this is true and this is true. Yes, God has absolute sovereignty. Yes, we have free will. And we'll define free will as well, because free will is affected by the fall, no question about that. Our being, we are, we're not the same nature that we were before the fall. Fallen mankind has an impaired nature. No question that sin affects our, our being. But does sin totally destroy our being? 
The Calvinists would say yes. The moderates would say, wait a minute, what does the scripture say? All right. So a lot of these questions then come into play. Whose fault is it that Sodom was destroyed? Was it Sodom's fault for not repenting? Was it God's fault? See, some would tell you, yes, it was Sodom's fault. They, they failed to repent. They were wiped out. But then others, would, the determinists would come along and say, no, wait a minute. It was God's fault. For his own glory, for his own purpose, in his own secret counsel, who can know his will, that uh, he chose to not arrange the circumstances that would have resulted in them repenting. He could have. He could have sent him a prophet. He could have done those miracles. He could have done the things necessary that would have resulted in their repenting. We know that. Jesus just told us that. So since God could have sent those prophets, done those miracles, brought about their repentance, since he could have and he didn't, it's God's fault that Sodom was destroyed. Some would tell you that. In fact, if the five-pointer thinks it through, he has to tell you that. It's the only conclusion he can come to. Now, We know that they were destroyed as a result of their own evil actions. Tyre and Sidon were, Sodom was, and so forth. The, the scriptures are abundant on that. What I think is going to answer it all for us is under point F, the realities of second-class conditional statements. The realities. These are realities. These aren't hypotheticals. These are realities. When Jesus Christ speaks them in the authority of God's word here in verse 21 and verse 23, these are realities. We can count on these statements that they would have repented and that Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent and Capernaum failed to repent. But Capernaum failed to repent under conditions, circumstantial conditions, which would have resulted in Sodom repenting. Those are the realities. And we just accept them because that's what Jesus said. Capernaum failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Sodom repenting. So, let's deal with these. I think we're solid. Um, we didn't look at all the verses last week, but uh, R.A. Torrey in his Treasury of Scripture Knowledge listed a handful of them, hypothetical prepositions. Or conditional if sentences. These are the conditions of the second class. Uh, second class conditional ifs. Contrary to fact or impossible. Dealing with past time. And he gives some examples. I know we didn't get through all of them. Um, I like 1 John 2.19. Where the false brethren, the antichrists, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Are you familiar with that verse? That is a second class condition. If, if they would have, if they had been of us, which they weren't, which is why they left. But if they had been, they would have remained. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So there's, there's an example of it. We have it in 1 Corinthians 2 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. These are the if and would have statements of Scripture. And because of these if and would have statements, we can learn some amazing blessings and principles about sovereignty and about free will, about God's plan, 
about our accountability. So let's look at these principles. And like I say, if it takes 10 minutes, then uh, we'll let you go early today. If it takes nine hours, then we're going to slug it out until we get it done. Principles of second class conditional statements contained in Scripture. Now, if you want to put another title on it, I got to thinking a few minutes ago, that may not be the best title for these principles. You may want to call it Principles of Omniscient Sovereignty and Human Volition. You can call it Principles of Omniscient Sovereignty sovereignty and Human Volition. Because that's what they are. But we're approaching it from this viewpoint. We're approaching it from the viewpoint of a second-class conditional statement. Specifically, the two second-class conditional statements that are made here in Matthew 11. The fact that God knows every what-if. The fact that He knows every what-if and He works through every single one of them. So, they are principles of of second-class conditional statements, but more specifically, they are principles of omniscient sovereignty. And I want to write this down so that I can... uh, when I edit my notes, principles of omniscient sovereignty and human volition. In light of second class conditional statements contained in Scripture. OK, in other words, this is the perspective we're going to approach it at. And this may help. This may absolutely help. Like I say, I have debated Calvinists. I've, by the way, I've also deba- debated Arminians. There aren't that many around, but you can find them. Okay? Come across a- anyone that thinks they can lose their salvation. All right? Some uh, Methodists, free Methodists, folks that are terrified they've got to hold on to it or, or endure. Okay? I've encountered a number of folks that were of an Arminian persuasion, even if they didn't understand their own theology, that's where they were coming from. Now, Let's begin. Principles of omniscient sovereignty and human volition. It might be that this approach, the other 19 billion approaches I've ever tried, didn't seem to get anywhere with some people. Maybe this approach will. So try it from another angle. Try it from another angle. Of course, nothing's going to work if your mind's made up and you're not even going to think about it anyway. All right. We'll start with what do we mean by accountability? What is accountability? Accountability is the just principle. In other words, it is the application of God's justice. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. Accountability. What do we mean when we say accountability? What do we mean when we say we're accountable? We're moral creatures. We're accountable. Angels were accountable. Human beings are accountable. We're the, we are the realms of creation that have been vested with volition. We are the realms of creation that Scripture describes as accountable. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. In other words, you made a decision, you're going to face the consequences. That's accountability. And it is a perfect application of divine justice. It is absolutely fair. 
It is just, it is right, because the standard for this accountability is the unchangeable standard of God's own righteousness. That's what we mean by accountability. Galatians 6, 7. Can anyone recite it? Has this been a Bible verse since you were five years old? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The law of sowing and reaping. We know it well. We know that decisions have consequences. When you make decisions contrary to the will of God, you're missing the mark. You're committing a sin. It begins with a mental attitude sin. It may progress into verbal and overt activities. But when you make the decision to do it, you've done it. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've done it. You've committed the adultery already in your heart, in your mental attitude, long before your body ever goes through with the activity. You've done it. When you've made the decision to do it, you've done it. Then you've committed the mental attitude sin. It's all about decisional consequences. We, we teach our children this. It's all about decisional consequences. You made your bed, you're going to lie in it. You made your choice, you face the consequences. Try to get them eight years working in the jail. Try to get that across with the inmates. It's all about decisions and consequences. You made choices. Now you're facing the consequences. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. Now, keep in mind, if there is no volition, then there is no true accountability. If there is no volition, then there is no true accountability. See, Calvinists look right at you and you say, no, there's no such thing as volition. There's no such thing as free will. Every choice you make is a part of what God foreordained. It's a part of what God decreed. So God is the source of every good decision. God is the source of every bad decision. He's the author of all good. He's the author of all evil. That's the determinist view. See? And, by the way, it's actually consistent with Islamic um, theology as well. The Quran teaches that this is the nature of Allah in the outworking of his plan. There is no volition in Islam. Everything is Allah's will. Okay? So, if there is no volition, then there's no accountability. I, st I still can do bad things, but I did that because God made me. And I can still receive punishment, but... I receive punishment because God made me do the bad thing to give me the punishment. And so, uh, in other words, it's God's fault that Sodom was destroyed because God didn't send them the prophet to have them repent. God left them in the position where they would fail. And so God is at fault for destroying Sodom. God does everything according to God's will. See? And they'll quote Romans 9 and other passages. That he uh, has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he will harden. And that verse defines the whole Bible, and no other verses exist in the Bible other than that concept to understand sovereignty. This class this morning is going to show you a bigger picture. Yes, God has sovereignty. Yes, God absolutely has total control over everything that ever happens. But it does not deny human volition, and it does not deny accountability. Because there are too many scriptures that address that. And I have to just put blinders on and ignore way too much. To embrace that view. I would rather. I mean think about it. If I have to hold to one scripture. 
and I idolize that one scripture to the point that I've got to ignore 50 scriptures. What am I really doing? Now, I want to I accept that one scripture because it's in the Bible, and this is a true scripture. But so are these other 50. And so I want to put them all together and understand the whole counsel of God's word. So accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. We'll come back to that. But it is, it is here in this very text, in verse 20, why did he denounce those cities? He denounced those cities because they did not repent. Now, that's not my opinion. That's scripture that wrote that. Jesus denounced them because they did not repent. That's the word of God. It assumes that they could have repented. <laughs> the text says that even Sodom could have repented. So Capernaum could have repented, and Chorazin could have repented, and Bethsaida could have repented. They all could have, but they didn't. Therefore, the decisional consequence, they received this rebuke, this message, this denunciation. All right, second principle. I think we're clear on this principle. Second principle, the long one. And I probably went too low on the thing, so I'll walk around and let you read it. God's omniscient awareness. Keep in mind, God knows everything. God's omniscient awareness of what potential decisions would be under different potential circumstantial conditions does not alter the just consequences of what the actual decisions are under the actual circumstantial conditions faced. Now, I know that's long. I must have rewritten that 30 times. So I said, you know, there's got to be a shorter way of saying that. And there is, but let's keep it wordy for now. In other words, God's omniscience doesn't change the accountability. Accountability is still accountability. Accountability is the just principle of decisional consequences. You make a decision, you face the consequences. That's called accountability. And that doesn't change because of God's omniscience. God's omniscient awareness of what potential decisions would be under different potential circumstantial conditions does not alter the just consequences of what the actual decisions are under the actual circumstantial conditions faced. We're still accountable. We're still accountable. So Sodom, the unbelievers of Sodom, can't stand up at the great white throne judgment and say, I was reading Matthew 11:23 the other day, and I found out that if you would have sent those miracles, I would have repented. So I don't think it's fair that I'm standing at the great white throne judgment and you're about to throw me into the lake of fire. Because if you would have sent those miracles, I would have repented. So it's not my fault I didn't repent. It's your fault 
that you didn't send the miracles so that I would repent, so that I could go to heaven, and so that I wouldn't be standing at the great white throne judgment about to be thrown into the lake of fire. You following all that? He can't accuse God of being unfair because God was perfectly fair. The, the decisional consequence was perfectly fair as a consequence to the decision that that sodomite made. Because he made his decision on the consequences, he, on the conditions he was faced with. So just because God knows the what if doesn't change the conditions. I mean, it doesn't change the accountability. It doesn't change the accountability. Think about any test. Think about a test. Uh, you're walking down the street and there's a bag laying there with $20,000 cash. Now, you're faced with a test. You're faced with a temptation. Now, let's just say that the circumstantial conditions surrounding this are that nobody's around, nobody's watching. If you take it, nobody's going to know. Or, that's, that's one thing. Or, what about in another condition where the other circumstantial condition would be that... Um, there's lots of people around, plenty of witnesses around. Uh, there's a camera there putting everything on video. And there's a, an armored truck there. And the security guard is right there. And it just so happens that he happened to drop that bag. He didn't see it drop, but he's only like three feet away. And if you picked it up, he'd probably turn around because he heard you or he'd see you. And it's on video and so forth. Now, those are two entirely different sets of circumstantial conditions in the second one i just described it's highly unlikely that it would be much of a temptation for any of us to try to swipe that bag of money and, and run off with it it might cross our mind but immediately we'd see there's a video camera there's an armed guard there's people around everybody sees what just happened we just saw he dropped the bag i saw it. these other witnesses saw it if i picked it up and ran i'd get caught Okay, so because of those circumstantial conditions, it's not much of a temptation. But if nobody was around and no camera and no witness and nobody would know, it's an entirely different temptation, isn't it? Then I have to really ask myself, am I going to take what doesn't belong to me? And it's not really stealing, is it? Because I just found it. Finding isn't stealing, right? Can I talk myself into that? If it doesn't belong to me, it's stealing. I might have found it, but who doesn't belong to? You see, or do we just go with the finders, keepers, losers, weepers, and, you know, it worked in kindergarten, why not? Now, God knows the what-ifs. And maybe there would have been other conditions that would have had a different outcome. That does not change the conditions you faced and what you did. Okay? That's what we're trying to say with this point. Could there have been other conditions? Of course. And could those other conditions have maybe had different outcomes? Absolutely. 
But none of that changes that these were the, con- the actual conditions you really did face, and this was the actual decision you really did make, and so this is the just consequence of that decision. You are accountable. That's what we're saying with this point. Just because God's omniscient doesn't change you being accountable. Now, thirdly, and this is where the lights really started to come on for me. For every volitional decision ever made, your decision to accept Christ, your decision to get married, your decision to join a church, your decision to whatever, for every volitional decision ever made, God's omniscience and omnipotence could have crafted circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in the opposite volitional decision being made. Think about it. For every volitional decision ever made, God's omniscience, because He knows every possibility, He knows which ones would have resulted in Sodom repenting. He knows which ones would have resulted in the opposite decision being made. For every volitional decision ever made, God's omniscience and omnipotence could have crafted circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in the opposite volitional decision being made. So think about it. um, Every decision. Like I say, your decision to accept Christ, your decision to get married, your decision, every decision you've ever made. Could he have crafted things so that we would have made different decisions? Yeah. In a lot of different ways. Actually, that's not very hard for him to do at all. So, because he could have but didn't, that is where I think I never thought it all the way through, and I don't think Calvinists ever think it all the way through. I know they don't. Because he could have but didn't. What does that tell you? It tells you that it's his sovereignty at work. Because he could have but didn't. Means that he is maintaining absolute 100% sovereign control over everything. God could have but did not craft such circumstantial conditions as the outworking of his own sovereign will. Example. In September of 1973, I accepted Christ. I received Christ. It was a gift, freely offered, freely received. Place my faith in the finished work of Christ, understanding that it was made on my behalf, understanding that I needed it, knowing that I was a sinner and what the consequences were. And there were lots of conditions, circumstantial conditions around that. Most of all, of course, that the Holy Spirit was convicting, the Father was drawing. No man can cometh unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God's grace was at work to fashion those circumstantial conditions, knowing 
that under those conditions, what my volitional decision would be. So I accepted Christ. And in God's plan, that's how it works. Now, an unbeliever doesn't say, and this comes back to that question, well, if they're part of the elect, if God elected them before the foundation of the world, then their volition has nothing to do with it. And that's, that's the thinking that can't put two and two together and accept them both being true. Because, yes, volition is still in play because God has determined that faith is the mechanism by which that, that gift is received. It must be received on the basis of faith. So because he could have but did not, God could have sent those prophets and miracles into Sodom, but he didn't. And his choice not to was his sovereignty making that choice. So sovereignty is still in view. I will defend sovereignty as strongly as any Calvinist will ever meet. Because God is absolutely in charge. No one can question what he does or the wisdom of why he does it. And so when he crafts the conditions the way that he does, and he chooses not to craft them any other way, knowing that this, these conditions are going to have those volitional consequences, his sovereignty works. But volition is still exercised. This is what we've got to hold on to. Fourth principle. The sovereign will of God in crafting one set of circumstantial conditions and not crafting any other circumstantial conditions absolutely proves his sovereignty is not limited by any volitional creatures or actions. See, now this is where the Arminian goes overboard. They would tie God's hands and say that sovereignty is subject to volition. That's where the Armenian goes too far. I just laugh at the whole thing because why do we even have volition? God gave it to us. And did he, was he forced to give it to us? Or did he, in sovereignty, give us volition? <laughs> so if he, in sovereignty, gave us volition, how does our volition restrict his sovereignty? That's a side trip. The principle, fourth principle being, the sovereign will of God in crafting one set of circumstantial conditions and not crafting any other circumstantial conditions. In other words, God did not send the prophets and the miracles into Sodom. Why not? Because he chose not to. But if he would have, they would have repented. That's not the point. The point is he didn't. They didn't repent. They were judged. They were condemned. They were destroyed. And he was perfectly fair for doing so. Because it was the just application of decisional consequences. They made the decisions and they reaped the consequences. So because he chooses which conditions to set and which conditions not to set, 
then everything is worked out according to the counsel of his own will. And yet, the volitional creatures are still accountable for the choices we make under the conditions he establishes. That puts it all together. Fifth principle. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. Decisional consequences are not administered for circumstantial conditions that are not faced. In other words, if he doesn't put you in a situation, then you're not accountable for that situation. That's, 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 that would be ludicrous. KC has never faced marital testing. Why? He's never been married. B3 has never been faced with marital testing. Why? He's never been married. He's never been. God has not placed him in those circumstantial conditions. And so, right at this moment, my son is not under God's judgment for being a rotten husband. Neither is he open to God's blessing for being a wonderful husband. Because he's not a husband. He's not accountable. He's not a father. In other words, if you don't face those consequences, I mean those conditions, then, then you're not accountable and there's no consequences. But you are accountable for the conditions you do face. Make sense? So if you do face it, you're accountable. Sodom was accountable for the conditions they did face. And they can't use some hypothetical conditions that they didn't face as an excuse to say, oh, if you would have sent those miracles, I would have repented. That's, that's not legitimate to, to claim a hypothetical set of conditions saying, oh, well, if you had done that, and then I would have, I would have done this. <laughs> you're not accountable for what you didn't face. You're accountable for what you did face. And when you faced what you did face, you pursued your own evil. Well, Sodom was destroyed. Second Corinthians eight twelve. This is a great text for a lot of different applications. Second Corinthians eight twelve. See, this is why every unbeliever is accountable for rejecting Christ. Because they were presented the opportunity to believe at whatever stage, at whatever position they were, under whatever conditions they were. And they're accountable for, what, for the decision they made. Now, obviously, if they weren't in the elect, then God was not going to be drawing them and wooing them and, and setting up the conditions that would have resulted in their faith. And so, by not being in the elect, they didn't get any of those conditions, but they were still faced with the decision, the question, accept Christ or reject Christ. And they made their decision. Now, 2 Corinthians 8.12. For, and here's the readiness, and this is a great, this is a great passage. Um, 
both of these chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, that these Macedonian churches, they gave in a greater ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I love the way that, that deep poverty can be overflowing in wealth. The world looks at that and says, well, that's insane. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. See, believers, grace believers, with a grace perspective, with uh, the, the love of giving, you don't have to twist their arm, you don't have to blackmail them, you don't have to go through guilt procedures or any other kind of thing. They want to give. They want to give. They'll give all they can and more based upon these principles. And it's not based upon what they have either. So they have a readiness. And I like verse 11, but now finish doing it all. So in other words, you had a good start, get done with it. Finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness and to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable. If the readiness, in other words, it's the attitude that makes it acceptable. Ideally, of course, you'd like to get it done, but God may not give those circumstances. But the readiness is there. If the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Is the readiness there? Then it's acceptable. The readiness is there. The willingness is there. The volition is there. And if you want to give as a free will grace gift offering, then it's according to that readiness, what you have, not what you don't have. Some people feel bad because they give whatever they're giving to the church and they say, oh, I wish it could be more. Well, it's not. Don't kill yourself over it. It is what it is. It's the readiness, though, that's there. See, you've got the grace attitude and you're giving. That's what it's all about not about the quantity it's not about what you don't have say well yeah if i was a billionaire i could i could give a lot more money to austin bible church well yeah maybe who's to say you'd have the same readiness as a billionaire that you have now maybe that you've got a readiness now a volition now a a grace perspective now you'd totally not have that if you had more money than you have Wealth would go to your head and you get all full of pride and your readiness would be totally gone. So it's the readiness is present. It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. See, and this is where it's a neat description here. Then you get on down into uh, chapter five, uh, chapter nine, and you realize that it's all about. The desire of your heart. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. In verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And how do we define sparingly and bountifully? Verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's all about Our volition is all about what we want to do in service to the Lord. And we're not accountable for the consequences we don't face. Or the conditions we don't face. We are accountable for the conditions we do face. So, in by following these principles, these principles, this is the sixth and final one, these principles affirm the sovereignty of God. 
these principles also affirm the free will of man. You work your way through all six of these principles, or all five leading up to this one. This one's number six. These principles affirm the sovereignty of God. These principles also affirm the free will of man. That we make the decisions we make. And we're accountable for them. You know, some of the objections and the, the, the issues that people take with these things are, well, you know, what if, you know, what, what if somebody believed in Jesus, but, uh, but they weren't one of the elect, right? Then, then God would really be in a tough spot, wouldn't he? Ooh, well, what would he do then? And, and they, they throw that as if somehow that's just a brilliant piece of logic that destroys your, your whole approach. When it's no more brilliant than the dumb thing the Sadducees came up with, with that crazy woman that had seven, lost seven husbands, you know. They thought they were all smart, saying, oh, answer me that. You know, got this woman and she, anyway. They, they pose this thing, well, what about, what if somebody believes in Christ, but they're not one of the elect? So what's God going to do? Is his sovereignty tied? Is he, does he then have to elect the person so they can have eternal life? See? And, and they throw out this hypothetical. Somehow, they've got it in their mind that volition then overrules God's sovereignty. And that's totally insane. Because no one can believe unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, why would the Father do that why would the Father draw somebody that's not elect? Okay, And this is where we've got to understand it. Because those who do accept Christ are in the elect. There's no question. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. So he knew each and every one of us. He knew Bob Bolander. And he sovereignly predestined me to become conformed to the image of his son. And he did that before the foundation of the world. Before I was ever born, before any decisional consequences were ever made. So sovereignty is at work. I am chosen, elect in Christ. However, my salvation in time was not, did not occur until I made the decision to accept Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That, that belief is the mechanism that God sovereignly designed to make that happen. So, if you think it sorry, if you think it through, God knows every decision. He knows every decision. So, if let's just say, you know, there's a person and he's on the verge of making a decision that totally throws God's plan into a tailspin. Why would God do that? Why would God allow that to happen? Now, God doesn't overrule the volition. God doesn't change the volition. But God knows what conditions and circumstances to bring about that will result in a different decision being made. 
So, if he wants me to make this decision, he doesn't make me do it. But he establishes the circumstantial conditions in which he knows I will do it. Make sense? Now, could he make other conditions if he wanted to? If he wanted me to make a different decision, could he arrange those circumstances? Sure. But regardless, whatever, it doesn't matter. Whatever conditions he does make, I'm still accountable for the choice I make under those conditions. I'm still accountable. So sovereignty still works because he chooses what conditions to put out there. Volition still works because I still have to make choices based upon the conditions I'm in. And they're both in harmony rather than in tension with one another. See? They're both in harmony and they're not in tension or conflict with one another. See, the Calvinist says, no, sovereignty and, and free will cannot coexist. Therefore, sovereignty exists and there's no such thing as free will. The Arminian effectively says there's no such thing as sovereignty. He won't be so blunt as to say that, but that's what he means. In other words, God, with his foreknowledge, he looks out there and he sees, ah, okay, he, he will accept Christ, he won't, he will, he won't, he will, he won't. And so then what he does is he goes ahead and he takes all these people who he knows will accept Christ, and then because he knows they're going to, then he elects them and sovereignly elects them before the foundation of the world. In other words, he elects those that he knows is going to believe. But that's not the definition of sovereignty. And that's, in fact, that ties sovereignty's hands. That's what the Arminian does. See? And the Arminian also says if the person then chooses to reject Christ, then he can lose his salvation and so on and so forth. All right. Any questions before I dismiss in prayer? Sovereignty works. Sovereignty is still sovereignty, and I'll defend that forever. But volition is still volition. And I've got to defend that forever, because they're both in the Bible. You reap what you sow. You make a decision, you face the consequences. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us. And, and Father, I pray that we will uh, learn these things and um, have a relaxed mental attitude, Father, um, I know there's, uh, we have, there are believers that struggle with this. Um, they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're redeemed. Uh, Christ died for them. They're part of our body. Father, the same thing holds true for the Arminians. They, they're born again. They're redeemed. We're going to see them in glory, even if they think they might lose it. We know they can't. And Father, uh, all my Arminian friends that, uh, that are truly re redeemed, Father, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I pray that I will have a grace attitude towards every Calvinist, Arminianist, or any other flavor of Christian that I come across, Father, because it's all about grace. There's areas that, uh, that they struggle with, sure. There's areas I struggle with, too. And I pray that I'll have the grace to give them time to learn some things, and they can have some grace to give me time to learn some things. And all together, Father, I pray that Jesus Christ will be exalted and glorified. pray that today might be the day that he comes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, in his most precious name that we pray. Amen.